Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Let us read from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And through a tent, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to the Ave Church. Man, I, I have a whole introduction. I'm not really sure how to get into it. It's been such a sweet time of worship with you. So I want to start just by saying thank you for inviting me and my family into your worship service. It's clear that the presence of God is with us, and as we'll, as we'll see in our text, as we just read, He is holy. So we sit right now on holy ground. We're about to hear from his holy word. And so as we do that, I want to say a word of prayer before we begin. And before I do that, I want to say thank you and also bring you uh, greetings from Midtown Baptist Church. Uh, That's where I'm an elder here in Memphis. Uh, We are excited about what God is doing uh, in this church, and we are happy to partner with you in gospel ministry in this way. It is an honor to be with you. It's also always an honor to share God's word. So as we go to do that this morning, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and ask that you would consecrate us this morning. We ask that you would allow us to see you, that you would open our eyes, that we might get a vision of your throne room where you are high and lifted up, where everyone around your throne 
sings forever and without end, holy, holy, holy are you. Father, with that in mind, I pray that you would consecrate the words of my mouth. I pray that I would become less, that you would become more. We pray that you would be faithful to what you say that your word will do, and that is it will never return void. We pray that your word would be an encouragement to the faith of your people, that it would convict us of sin, that it would cleanse us of unrighteousness. And Father, if there is anyone here who does not know you yet, we pray that the word might pierce their heart and that you would give them faith this morning that they might know you and see you for the first time. We recognize that none of this can happen apart from you. We recognize that we can bear no fruit unless you will it. And so in short, Father, we ask you to be you this morning. And we look forward at the end of our time together to being just a little bit more like Jesus because we have spent time with you. We ask all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder how your New Year's resolutions are going. Uh, Maybe you don't make them. Maybe you already made them. I haven't made any yet, uh, but I did last year. Uh, The casual observer can tell that I'm not much of a runner. But my oldest son is, and he does distance running, which I hate with a passion. But I was like, maybe I should get into it, do be like a whole good dad thing, you know, maybe I'll do what he does and we can run together. When we run together, we don't actually run together. We tried one time and the only way to stay together is that he would literally run circles around me while I was trudging along. And he could barely be that slow. But in 2021, I was like, you know, I'm going to get into this thing. So I did the whole couch to 5K thing that I signed up for a series of races here in Memphis. I ran two 5Ks, two 10Ks, two 5-milers, two 10-milers, and even a half marathon. Don't, don't get excited about it. I was the slowest person possible. Everybody that I passed after the first mile was like, should we cheer him on or just take him off the course? Which is better for him? I don't know. So in, coming into 2022, I was like, I'm going to set some goals. I ran a half marathon, let's run a full marathon. So I signed up for another series of races. Then halfway through the year in 2022, uh, I'm getting older, and I, I found muscles that I didn't know that I have. And the reason that I found them is they start to hurt a lot. And so I, I started to hurt in my lower back all the way down into my leg. And I was like, you know what, this is probably nothing big. Let's just keep running. That will solve the pain problem. Uh, it didn't, uh, surprise. So the pain just increased, and I, I never ran anything further than an 8K. I didn't run past the month of August. And I felt like a failure. I didn't succeed in my goal. This year, as I come into 2023, I have a different vision for the way that I want to think about my goals. Because when we think about our New Year's resolutions, we often think of what do we want to accomplish by the end of the year. We think about who do we want to be by the end of 2023. I wanted to be a little thinner. I wanted to be healthier, and so I set a goal for running. I wanted to be able to run with my son. Some of that was just vanity. Other of it was trying to be faithful with what I've been given. But recently, I had a conversation with some friends. I hadn't seen them. We hadn't really been able to sit down and talk for 10 years. 10 years ago, we had a lot of high hopes and goals for what our ministry would look like, what our teaching ministry would look like, what our families would look like, what we would look like as men in those different positions. And so we sat down and we talked. We talked about everything that has gone just like we thought, which was very few things. 
And we talked about everything that hadn't gone the way that we thought. Failures in ministry, loss of loved ones, loss of friendships, not necessarily from death, but just from falling out in sin. And somebody said something to me in that conversation that changed the way that I'm looking at my 2023, and I wonder if you might do the same. So, you know, 10 years ago, we thought we had all this figured out. We knew what was going to happen. We knew what the Lord had for us. And maybe you think that same thing for 2023. He said, the reality is we simply don't know what's going to happen. He said, but in every circumstance, in everything that we do, there is always the opportunity for Christ-likeness. That has changed the way that I view my 2023. And what you need, if you're going to keep that vision, stay on that course, that no matter what happens in my life, no matter how good or bad, I'm going to pursue Christ-likeness in it. You need a vision to sustain you. In our text this morning, I think we get a vision that sustains us for that pursuit, no matter what comes. We get a vision of a holy God who shapes a holy people for a holy vision. I'm going to say a lot of things. If you paid attention to our text at all, it's an intense text and there's a lot there. So before we get into the details, I just want you to remember this one statement, if you remember nothing else at all from this morning. And that is, church, we have a holy God who makes us a holy people and sets us apart for a holy mission. So as we dive into the text, we see here, I'm not going to read it all again because we don't have a ton of time. And if I read it again, when we've already read it, we're just going to waste some time. But I'm just going to go verse by verse here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What Isaiah is seeing here is the throne room of God. And it's important to note that when he sees the, the Lord high and lifted up and on his throne, it is in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is that important? Well, this puts us at about 740 B.C. I think Isaiah has been doing ministry for a few years because the beginning of the book of Isaiah tells us that Isaiah ministered during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Israel. But this is the first king to die during Isaiah's ministry. And what happens when kings die is there's a transition of power. And this is when enemies strike. If any of you have seen Black Panther, you know this, right? When does warmonger come when there's a transition of power? Why? Because there's maybe a vacuum of leadership. People don't know who to follow or what to do, and they're in mourning and grieving. And so here we are in a transition of leadership. The first king to die in Isaiah's ministry. And the Lord in his kindness shows him the throne room. He shows him that though the king of Israel, Uzziah, has died, the Lord is still high and lifted up on his throne. What is he showing him? He's showing him despite the fact that in all the kingdoms of the world, there will be transition of power after transition of power. On the throne of God, there is never a transition of power. Isaiah would see Uzziah die, but he would also see many other kings die. He would live through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Israel. Just stick with me as I say some strange names. He would be there for the kings of Assyria who would die. Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib. He would see all of them come to power and then die, some of them at the hands of their own family members. 
he would see rulers come and go on the throne of Babylon. Meredith Baladon is mentioned here in Isaiah, but others like Marduk Meshuzub Usu. Of course, I'm sure you're familiar with him. This is not even to mention all the other nations that are mentioned and their rulers here in the book of Isaiah, the kings of Moab, of Elam, of Egypt, of Cush. Isaiah would see a bunch of kings come and die, and in every year that one of those kings died, he could look up at the throne room of heaven and he would see the exact same thing. The Lord high and lifted up. Why? Because there's no transition of power in the throne room of God. We can bring it all the way into our present time and all the way to the future until the Lord comes back. There's never a transition of power in the throne room of God. Who's on the throne in Russia? It's Vladimir Putin. In the year that he rose to power, in the year that he dies, you could look up in the throne room of heaven and what will you see? You will see the Lord high and lifted up. Queen Elizabeth reigned for a thousand years. In the year that she died, what do you see when you look up at the throne room of heaven? You see the Lord high and lifted up. And a thousand years ago when she came to the throne, guess where the Lord was? He was on his throne, high and lifted up. Let's bring it to the United States and make it a little more controversial. I apologize, Pastor Tim. The year that Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, where was the Lord? He was on his throne, high and lifted up. In the year that Donald J. Trump was elected as president of the United States, where was the Lord? He was high and lifted up. In the year that Joe Biden was elected, where was the Lord? He was high and lifted up. And if you lost sight of that, you lost sight of a holy God making you into a holy person for a holy mission here in Memphis. In the Lord's kindness... The Lord allowed Isaiah to see his throne room, that there's no transition of power, and in his kindness to us, he moved Isaiah to write it down so that the people of God for all time could be reminded that there's no transition of power in the throne room of God. If you want to sustain a vision of Christ-likeness, no matter the circumstance throughout 2023, you've got to remember that. The text goes on. And talks about the hem of the robe filling the temple. We're getting a vision. A temple is just a dwelling place for a god. A dwelling place for a king is called a palace. A dwelling place for a god is called a temple. A dwelling place for me is just called a house. And here the hem of his robe fills the temple. And so this is the bottom of the robe of the one who sits on the throne. And it fills the entire temple. We're just getting a vision of how massive this king and god is. Next, the text says that seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Seraphim is just taking some Hebrew letters and putting English sounds to them, English lettering. Seraphim is just burning things. I don't really know what they look like. If you get this vision of angels, you know, you have this vision of these cool wings, these little halos and stuff. If you actually drew a picture of what the Bible describes angels to be like, it would be really, really strange to us. There's these burning things. And they have six wings. With two, they cover their faces. And with two, they cover their feet. I think this is a sign of a couple of things. Despite the fact that these are majestic beings that sit around the throne room of God, it's possible that if they don't cover their faces, they themselves will be destroyed by the holiness of God. It's possible that they're doing it just out of a sign of respect in the way that you might look at the ground when somebody powerful walks in the room. It's possible that it's both. It's possible that we don't know. But they are flying around the throne. And when they look at the one who is high and lifted up, how do they describe his character? They say this, singing one, 
to another. I mean, this was pretty beautiful up here. I think it might be beautiful when we get to heaven and we hear these harmonious voices singing. And what do they sing? They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, I think probably based on this vision, is consumed with the holiness of God. The, the title most common in the book of Isaiah for God is that he is the Holy One of Israel. It's used 25 times. It's only used six other times in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah is consumed with the holiness of God. 13 other times, God will be directly described as holy in the book of Isaiah. What does it mean for him to be holy? It means that he's set apart and there's no one like him. Aside from the fact just that Isaiah uses the word holy over and over and over again, he also describes the holiness of God as his incomparability. Nothing can be compared with him, especially in the heavenly realm among the gods. And in fact, what God does, he says, if you think you've found someone who is like me, bring him on. Let's set, up, let's set us next to each other and see who is better. God invites you to say, if you think you've found someone more faithful, more pure, more righteous, more holy, bring him and let's do a comparison. How do I know that he does this? Later in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 46, the people of God face a circumstance that is unlike anything that they have seen. During the ministry of Isaiah, I think this is about 40 years from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 40. You know what Isaiah sees? Over the first 20 years of his ministry, he sees the northern tribes exiled as Assyria comes in and wipes them out. That's 11 tribes of Israel exiled. It's not just removal from the land, it's enslavement. It's murdering of family members and friends. After that, Sennacherib will come to the throne in Assyria, and what does he do? He takes the southern kingdom, Judah, and surrounds Jerusalem. And only because Hezekiah prays is Jerusalem saved. But apart from that, during Isaiah's ministry, what he sees is the exiling almost of the entire people of God. And rightfully so, the people ask, God, where are you? And he says, to whom will you liken God? What likeness will you compare him in Isaiah 40, 18? Isaiah 40, 25 says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. In Isaiah 44, 7 and 8, he says, who is like me? Is there any God besides me? Isaiah 46, 5, he says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In other words, he's pointing out and he's saying, there's thinking, God, the circumstances that I have are because your power and your love have failed me. His message to them is not that his power and his love have failed them, it's that they never trusted in it in the first place. And as a result, he's showing them the emptiness and the powerlessness of the idols that they have served. And so in his kindness, he comes back and he says, you want to compare these other things that you have trusted with me? Please do, because in so doing, you will find that I am your only hope. And in his holiness, he is holy in his being. Isaiah 43, verse 10, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. In Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. The one who is holy in his being, the only God in the universe, is also holy in his creating. Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. 
He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. He's the one who is holy in his being as God. The one who is holy in his creating is also holy in his sovereignty. He's on the throne, remember? Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God. No one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from long ago, what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. The one who is holy as God, the only God that there is, the one who is holy in his creating, the one who is holy in his sovereignty and ruling over the universe, he is also holy in his saving. The one who is on the throne, who created all things, the only God and the one who reigns over all things, he's good. Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah is consumed with the holiness of God because he wants the people to catch a vision of the one who is sitting on the throne so they might catch a vision for who they're supposed to be in the mission that they are on. Church, there is no one like our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And this idea of the Lord of hosts is not only is the one who is on the throne a king, but he is the commander of all of heaven's armies. And he fights for you. We go on in the text, we get this vision of the holiness of God. And then we see Isaiah's response. Isaiah is still standing outside of the throne room of God. He's seeing into it, but he hasn't been allowed to enter into it. Because if he were allowed to enter before God allows him to, he would be consumed by the holiness of God. He simply cannot stand. And we see that this is true. In verses 4 and 5, it says, The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, talking about the seraphim, and the temple was filled with smoke. Again, this idea that the voices are powerful and the smoke there to filter the holiness of God, lest you be consumed by it. Then what is Isaiah's response to this? Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and living among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. You see what's happening here in Isaiah. When he sees the holiness of God, he realizes that he is not holy in comparison. Now, think about this. Isaiah is a prophet of God. He's already been doing ministry and proclaiming the word of God to his people. And what does he say is unclean? He could have said a whole lot of things. My mind is unclean. My heart is unclean. My hands are unclean. My feet are unclean. But instead, he says, my lips are are unclean. The best of what Isaiah has to offer in comparison to the holiness of God is unclean. I know that you think that you're enough. In some sense, that's true. But what you bring to the table, you can bring the best of what you have, and it's not anything in comparison to the holiness of our God. And so the question is, how does this unclean man, Isaiah, come into the presence of a holy God? How does he come into the presence of the king, the commander of the armies of heaven. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal. He had from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. The only reason that he can enter into the presence of God as an unclean sinner is because of God's grace and mercy. 
Now, what's interesting here, and we'll come back to this at the end, is he doesn't describe what's on the altar. He doesn't describe who he sees on the throne. But something from the altar touches his lips. There's a coal that's brought, and it purifies his lips. Now, this is a vision of burning. I don't know if you've ever been burned, but it doesn't feel good. But it is a purifying of his lips so that he might be set apart for mission, but first come into the presence of God. Because if he sees God and comes into his presence, he will be transformed as a holy man to be sent out on a holy mission. This is why we gather on a weekly basis. You don't gather for the sake of gathering. You gather to be in the presence of a holy God so that he can send you out on a holy mission. Now, why does this matter? From a very young age, we all want to be set apart. I've got four kids, and each of them, you know, one of them will do something cool and be like, hey, Daddy, check this out. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then another one's like, oh, yeah? Well, hey, check this out. I could do a backflip. Check this out. They think they're doing something cool, and they're really, they, they look silly, right? And I'm like, oh, that is awesome, right? And then, but then the third one's like, those two people did something cool. I got I to gotta set myself, well, I can do this over here, right? And then, and then the youngest is like, I'm going to run through that wall for you, right? <laughs> don't get me wrong. He runs straight into the wall. He didn't run through it, but when he falls over, I say, great job, buddy. Good job. From a very young age, we want to be set apart. You remember this. Maybe you went to school and, and you were really good at math or English or you could draw great pictures. And the thing that you started to want to be set apart is what people praised you for. And they noticed something. Maybe it was your hair, a physical feature. Maybe it was your eyes that people saw. And they saw you and they said, I know that it's Tim because of that hat he wears. I know it's Tim because of his smile. I know it's Mark because when he preaches, he sweats, right? <laughs> I know it's Mark because when I see him run a race, he's the guy who looks like he's going to die the entire time but somehow makes it to the end. Maybe you're funny. Whatever it is, there's something about you that you think, this is who I am. And there's nothing wrong with that. God created you with distinctive features. I look out across the congregation, and what do I see? I see a bunch of individuals collected as a family. You're distinct from one another. But those are echoes of a greater setting apart that you are to desire. When we pursue those as ultimate, that this is who I am at my core, that's when things start to fall apart. But when you see that the gifts that you've been given, the beauty that you've been given, the humor that you've been given, when you see that that is to be set apart for the holiness of God, for a holy mission, that's when things come into right order. And so here, Isaiah, he is cleansing his lips for the proclamation of the word. I wonder what God is sending you out for and what he wants to consecrate in you. That thing that you think is at the core of who you are, it is not. It is a good thing that God has given you, and he wants to consecrate it for his glory, for his mission in Memphis. And if you don't know him this morning, if you're sitting here and you think, I don't believe in this God, I have not put my faith in this king, how can I enter into his presence? He will make you holy if you trust in him. So here, we see the holiness of God in the throne room. We see that this holy God makes a holy man to be sent out on a holy mission. But he's not just fine with making one person holy. He now is going to make his people 
holy. He says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, what's interesting about this that you might notice is Isaiah has no idea what the mission is. And as you read the rest of the text, you might think, Isaiah, hey, this was, this was bad strategy, man. You should have asked, what are you asking me to do? Then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to sign up for it. So we might ask the question, why is it that Isaiah, before he knows what the task is, before he knows his holy mission, why does he say, here am I, send me? Because he doesn't know the mission, but he knows the one who is sending. He doesn't know what he's sent to do, but he, know that he knows the king who rules over all things. And then you see the response of the Lord, and Isaiah has an opportunity, I think, to go back on it. He says, here I am, send me. And so God replied, go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now, if you're paying attention at all, that doesn't sound like any fun, right? This is the Lord of heaven. This is the king who's on the throne with no transitions of power. This is the one who commands the armies of heaven. And this is my mission. I'm going to preach and they're not going to see what I'm saying. I'm going to preach and they're not going to understand what I'm saying. I'm going to preach and their hearts aren't going to be changed. In fact, they're going to be hardened. Now, I wonder, Pastor Tim, if I came to you and I said, the Lord's given me a vision. Here's your ministry in Memphis. You're going to preach exactly what the Lord says. And in Memphis, nobody's going to see it and perceive it. People are going to hear it, but they're not going to understand and their hearts will not be changed. In fact, they'll be made dull. Maybe you then take that to your staff meeting. You say, guys, I've gotten a vision from the Lord. Here it is. We're going to do ministry in Memphis. We're going to seek the shalom of the city. And here's what's going to happen, guys. Are you ready? Are you ready for this vision? Nobody's going to hear it and understand it. Nobody's going to see what we're doing and perceive that the Lord's a part of it. And nobody's heart is going to be changed. Praise God, will you come with me? Is that what your vision casting meetings look like when you planted the church? I wonder then if the staff came up here and they said, church, we got a vision from the Lord. And here's what's going to happen. We together are going to work, and we're going to faithfully minister in the city of Memphis for the shalom of the city. And guess what's going to happen? Nobody's going to hear and understand. Nobody's going to see and perceive what we're doing. And nobody else is going to believe we're going to stay exactly the way that we are, and it's going to be terrible. Would you sign up for that? And after you had already said, Tim, we, we believe in you. We're ready to go. Here am I. Send me. And then he says that. What would your question be? There would be a pretty robust Q&A, I would guess. But look at what Isaiah does. He now knows what his mission is, and what does he say? All right. Until when? How long, O Lord? That's a fine question. Hey, if this is for like a year, right? This is my 2023, right? It can sustain me for 20, that's fine. But then after that, we're going we're gonna to blow it up, right? We're going to be bursting at the seams because, man, a year is a long time to wait for the Lord. 
Maybe five years. I got five years. In my five-year plan, this might be able to work. But after that, we need a new one. Well, when Isaiah asked the Lord how long, this is his response. Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Now, according to my calculations, this is at least 40 years of ministry for Isaiah. 40 years. I'm not even 40 years old yet. You're like, I thought you looked 55. That might be the case, but I'm not even 40 yet. (laughs) My entire lifetime will look like this. Some of you aren't even half of 40 yet. You can't even conceive of what 40 years looks like. This is how God responds. And what follows is a faithful ministry for the entire life of Isaiah's ministry. According to my calculations, probably 60 years of faithful proclamation. What is it that sustained Isaiah through this time? The vision that he saw in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. That he knew no matter what, no matter what happened, there was going to be no transition of power in the throne room of God. He knew that God was holy, that he had the, the charge of the Lord's armies, the heaven's armies. He had all that charge, and he saw the beauty of God and his holiness, and he said, if that's who calls me to this, then this is worth him. He also saw a vision. We skipped over this, but I'll come back to it now. He saw a vision of what the end goal of this God's mission is. The glory of God will fill the earth. You might not see it, but you'll be a part of the mission. Are you willing to not receive the reward yet, but serve the king who is worthy of the mission? And there's a third thing. You got to pay attention to this. For a long time, I've read Isaiah 6, and I thought, this mission is terrible. I had it wrong. Why? You got to read the last few words of the last verse of Isaiah 6. What is left? The holy seed is left. Now, what he describes is he describes someone who goes through a forest and is chopping down trees. Anybody do any gardening or try to take care of anything in your, in your yard, getting a lot of no's out there. <laughs> it makes sense. One of the reasons I got into gardening, very small gardening, is I wanted to understand Scripture better. This is the idea of being pruned, right? Now, there's some gardening, there's some pruning. We'll talk about pruning in a second, but I have a house and I have these shrubs that I didn't want to be there anymore. So, man, I went at those things. You know, these gangly things, like they don't look pretty, they don't do anything for me. Let's just get them out of the way, have some more space in the yard. So I got there, man, I've got, you know, I've got, I'm chopping off little limbs, I'm taking an axe, I'm taking a, a saw, and I've got that thing, I mean, goes from being like this all the way down to here. You know what the problem was? I left a stump. It looked like it was dead, but I didn't dig it up from the roots. I had started to, took a shovel, you know, I even took my axe to the roots, and I'm trying to, I mean, my, if, um, Kimberly might have gotten some video of this, my wife, and it would be crazy, because I'm just out there rocking with this tree, trying to dig it up from the roots, but I couldn't get up, and I was like, you know what, it's dead. I've killed that thing. Let's leave it. 
spring rolls around, still looks a little dead. We're a few weeks into spring, and I look out at that thing. That's not a, that's not a green leaf, is it? <laughs> I killed that thing. All right, now we'll go cut that thing off. Two weeks later, oh, here comes a branch. Here comes a bloom. And before I know it, that thing is bigger than when I cut it down. Why? Because I left a stump. The other reason that Isaiah is committed to this mission is he sees the end goal. That God is not digging his people up by the roots, but rather he is pruning them back. And what is going to happen with the holy seed that remains is holiness is the goal. And so what's going to happen is because he prunes them back and leaves the roots, there's going to be a sprig that comes up. The nations around, the world around is going to think that God has killed his people, but he hasn't because he left a stump. And slowly they're going to grow, and eventually it's going to lead to Jesus, and we'll get to more of that in a second. In other words, God is not a bad lumberjack who walks around in the forest with an axe thinking, oh, I'll just cut this down and dig it up by the roots. He is much more, when he wields his blade, he is much more like a surgeon with a scalpel. When he cuts you open, it will hurt, but he is digging out the cancer in your life so that you might heal and be stronger than before. And the end goal is holiness because a holy God shapes a holy people for a holy mission. When we look at this, we come back and we see that God didn't describe, or Isaiah didn't describe who was seated on the throne. This is an interesting question, at least to me. He doesn't describe the one sitting on the throne, but we have other pictures of the throne room of heaven. We can see this in the book of Revelation. Maybe you know this text. In Revelation, John, the gospel writer, is given a vision of heaven. And what does he see? He sees people around the throne of God, and they are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But who is it that is seated on the throne? John describes the one who is seated on the throne, the one who is high and lifted up. And what he describes is surprising. Because there sits the the Lord who is high and lifted up. There sits the, the commander of heaven's armies, the ruler of all creation. And we might expect a description that describes him as dressed in silver and gold with a big crown and he is strong and he is mighty and he is big and John's description of the one on the throne goes like this he looks like a lamb who has been slain when John looks up at the throne room in heaven and he sees the one on the throne he sees a lamb that has been slain why is that the case because the one who sits on the throne is the one who was crucified for our sin to make us holy his name is Jesus the gospel writer John who saw this vision revelation He talks about Jesus in Isaiah 12, and he talks about the ministry of of, of Jesus, and you know what he quotes? He quotes this text in Isaiah, that the ministry of Jesus was just like Isaiah's, that he would preach and nobody would see who he is, that the one that was before them was the one who was on the throne and was now come into the midst of his people. When Jesus would preach, they would hear, but they wouldn't understand what he was saying. This is why Jesus says he preaches in parables. They wouldn't understand and unrevealing their hearts that they were opposed to the things of God. And hearts wouldn't be changed in the ministry of Jesus. But what John says when he quotes Isaiah 6, he says, Isaiah did describe the one who was on the throne and he described him as the lamb that was slain because John says when Isaiah looks at the throne room, you know what John says that he sees? 
the glory of Jesus. When Isaiah looks at the throne room of heaven in Isaiah 6, he sees the glory of Jesus, the lamb that was slain sitting on the throne. How can I say that? How can John say that? Well, remember, Isaiah's ministry will only go on for so long. It will only be so long that the people of God will see and not hear or see and not perceive, hear and not understand, and their hearts will be made dull. But there is someone who is coming in the book of Isaiah who will cause their eyes to see, who will open their ears to hear and change their hearts. And what he sees, who he sees on the throne in Isaiah 6, he writes about him in Isaiah 52 and 53. You might know this text as the suffering servant. Listen to how he begins this description of God's servant. See, my servant will be successful. What is he? He is high and lifted up. This servant that he describes, this language of high and lifted up in the book of Isaiah, it only applies to God throughout the entire book. And then here, we ought to anticipate that we will see God high and lifted up. But I want you to listen to the strange description here. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, verse 14, just as many were appalled at you. His appearance was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. And his form didn't resemble a human being, so he will sprinkle many nations. The one that he sees high and lifted up looks as though he has been slain. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. And listen to this. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Here, sight is being given to the blind, understanding to the dumb, hearing to the deaf. Verse chapter 53, who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Who is he describing? The servant of the Lord who was high and lifted up, the lamb that was slain. Now why does he look like this? Why does the one who is high and lifted up, who commands heaven's armies, why does he look so disfigured? He himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of what? Our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah describes the one that he sees high and lifted up as the lamb who was slain because he's describing the one who was promised in Isaiah 7:14 that a virgin will conceive and a baby will be born and we will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one in Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders. And how does he accomplish this? How does he accomplish the salvation of God's people? How does God accomplish this? The holiness of his people. He comes in human form to die on our behalf. I cut a lot out of my sermon as I listened to us worship so I could get to this point. When he sends Jesus, I want you to hear this very clearly. We talk about seeing the throne room of heaven. It's not because he is indifferent toward your pain. Vladimir Putin does terrible things. All of our presidents are pretty much terrible. They're people, right? 
who have too much power than a human is supposed to have. Rulers throughout the world. You want to read some terrible things? Go read what the Assyrian kings did even to God's people. He's not indifferent toward your pain. He gives you a vision of his throne room so that you can see that the one who is on the throne takes your pain upon himself. And we know this because this one who was on the throne left heaven to come down to earth to enter into your pain. This is what we just celebrated in Christmas. This is the incarnation of our God. And constantly throughout the Gospels, what do people miss? They miss the fact that this guy who was high and lifted up, this God who is the king of all of creation, who is holy, 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 he enters into our unholiness, not because he's unclean, but to make you clean. And how does he do it? He lives the life that you couldn't live to take the punishment that you can't handle on the cross, and then he raises from the dead to overcome sin and death. And guess where he is now? He's not still roaming the earth as a human. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits on the throne where there is no transition of power. The king that is on the throne, the reason you can trust him in the midst of your pain and anything through 2023, why is that? Because the one who is on the throne sits there to intercede for you. The one who is on the throne sees your circumstances. He hears your prayers. And the reason I wanted to get to this is I sat down with my notes and I started chopping things out. When we brought our sister up to pray for her in the midst of a death of a family, what is it that allows the people of God after an unexpected death to rise up and sing these words? In the midst of death, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. Why? Why can we do that? Because the one who is seated on the throne, he hears the weeping of his people. He collects your tears in a bottle and counts them all. He knows your pain, and we know this because Jesus has entered into it to redeem it. He is not indifferent to your pain. He hears it, he sees it, and the one on the throne enters into it to redeem it. I don't know what 2023 is going to look like for you. You don't either. But I do know this, that the one who is seated on the throne, the lamb who was slain, the one whom God sent, to live a perfect life for you, die for your sin, overcome sin and death, and ascend it to the right hand of the Father. He is still on the throne, and he still has the same mission for his people. He is the holy God who forms us into a holy people for a holy mission. My prayer for you in 2023 is that whatever your circumstance might be, that this would be your vision of a holy God who shapes a holy people for a holy mission, that no matter what you face, you know that this is possible. Because of who God is, you become more like Christ and be set apart for the mission that he has for you. And if your joy and your hope is set on that, 2023 cannot be a failure. Let's pray.